This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at the way in which dissertations in the early 20th century produced and governed the emerging field of education and how these new knowledges moved across the world. Our focus is on Teachers College Columbia University, which, as my guest Danny Friedrich says, was at the largest doctoral program in the nation. Um, and so all those names I mentioned, all of them had many, many students that brought those ideas to different places. And it's not any students that came here, right? So if you think about Teachers College and Columbia University, we're talking about mostly elite, like ultra elite students from around the world. So, so people that already uh, were well positioned in their countries to come to New York City, to come to Columbia University. Danny Friedrich is an associate professor of curriculum and the director of the doctoral program in the Department of Curriculum and Teaching at Teachers College Columbia University. Together with Nancy Bratt, he recently published in the latest issue of the Comparative Education Review, The Dissertation and the Archive, Governing a Field Through the Production of a Genre. Danny Friedrich, welcome back to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So can you tell me a little bit about the type and sort of influence that Teachers College, which is now located at Columbia University, has had on the field of education specifically? Yes. So when you hear names like Maxine Green, Isaac Kendall, Ed Gordon, John Dewey, those are names deeply associated to Teachers College. So when you think of the history of education in the U.S., but also abroad, it's really hard not to see the huge influence that TC has had in the field of education writ large, right? Um, also, it's important to consider that during the first half of the 20th century, most of it, TC had the largest doctoral program in the nation. Um, and so all those names I mentioned, all of them had many, many students that brought those ideas to different places. And it's not any students that came here, right? So if you think about Teachers College and Columbia University, we're talking about mostly elite, like ultra elite students from around the world. So people that already uh, were well positioned in their countries to come to New York City, to come to Columbia University, were really at the top of the societies in terms of having access to resources, having networks, um, speaking the language in many cases. Uh, and so all of those people that came from different places of the world to DC, then uh, many of them went back to their countries and ha- were key players in setting up institutions, systems, models of education. And, and this all plays into how this paper came to be, which has to do a bit more my personal experience, which was that I was department chair for curriculum and teaching for two years, a couple of years back, and as department chair, I was impressed with the amount of students, uh, amount of people, sorry, from different places of the world that came to see me, set up appointments and told me how, say, for example, a Chilean person that came said, well, the person that founded early childhood education in Chile, Irma Salas, was a doctoral student at DC, so I'm here really to look at the archive. And the founder of my university in China studied with Dewey here in DC, so I'm here to look at the archive. So as department chair, I really had first had experience with how many people came and had connections to DC. So I was fascinated by that. And that's what sort of led us to think about the role of DC um, in the field of education. 
it's quite fascinating to think that there were so many international students in the early 1900s studying at Teachers College and then going back to their countries or going back to the different institutions where they came from and sort of impacting them, changing them, and using the ideas they might have learned at Teachers teacher's college to do so. Do you know how many international students like, you know, I mean, was it in, in a typical cohort? Was it, you know, 10% or, you know, how many, how big of a population was it? So to get that information, it was not easy, right? So Nancy and I, uh, what we did initially, and, and another sort of group of students that sort of helped us also create this initial archive, um, Cara Gavin, uh, Ana Paula Marquez de Carvalho, who was a doctoral student from Brazil visiting TC at uh, a few years back. And, and so what we did is first, we found out that Teachers College has terrible archives, unfortunately. There's a lot of stories about what happened to those archives. We talk about them. But so we went to Columbia University and looked at the commencement program. And through the commencement programs where they had listed the undergraduate institution that students had attended and their degree, uh, we sort of sorted out the education students and we used first as proxy for the first list of international students where their undergrad was abroad. Then we also Googled all the names and we looked at different sources to get all the names. And so initially the project, the, the paper that we're talking about is only part of the project. The paper is from 1900 to 1920, but our project went all the way to 1940. So between 1900 and 1940, we read 110 dissertations produced for international students at Teachers College. Um, in the first two decades, the, the ones that are for this paper, we used 20 dissertations out of the 21 that were produced. Only one was not available to us from a South African student. There's only one copy of the dissertation alive, and it's in a uh, library in South Africa, and we just couldn't get access to it. But all the others we got. So, I mean, it was a, for the time, it was a significant number. As I mentioned before, it was not only the largest doctoral program in education, but it's also the one with the largest amount of international students. That's quite interesting. And so what did you expect to find by looking at dissertations when it comes to trying to unpack some of the influence TC has had? So the dissertation, in a way, is defined by the idea that it's supposed to present new knowledge, right? So when you think of master's thesis or integrative projects, usually there are different kinds of, of work. Sometimes there are synthesis, sometimes there are practical projects, there are curriculum designs. But dissertation is supposed to present new knowledge. At least that's how we think of it now. But the way we conceptualize it in the paper is as a genre. That is, as a, as a discursive practice with rules uh, that have a history, that set up what is allowed to be said, how is it allowed to be said, how is it to be counted as new knowledge. So when we looked at the dissertations, our idea was, first of all, to focus on international students because we wanted to see the relation between TC and the world. And we focused on dissertations and not on master's project. First of all, because master's project would have been almost an infinite archive, right? It's many, many more students. But also because of this goal of producing new knowledge. So the idea was, how are the ideas that are being produced at teachers' college that are circling through the faculty's college that had huge influence in the U.S.? How are these ideas traveling? Um, how are they being made sense by uh, students that come in with different frameworks from their different countries? And in the future, to think about also what happens to the knowledge when it lands in other places. And so you ended up looking at around 20 dissertations for this paper. And you ended up coming up with different ways of categorizing these dissertations. So the first type that you've, you've identified, um, and I guess I should say that you also recognize that the, the 
the boundaries between these types are a bit blurred and it's not so distinct. But the the type one, the first type you come up with is called the encyclopedic dissertation. What do you mean by this? So before we get into that, it's important to know that we are very aware of the act of categorizing is in itself um, a colonizing effort, right? Sort of we're trying to dominate knowledge that's much more wild and we continuously struggle with the idea of, of an unruly archive and our efforts to sometimes organize it in order to produce a heuristic, but at the same time respect that unruliness, right? Uh, because much of our work is framed as, and here we draw a lot from Kita Takayama's work and his call to dig into the colonial entanglements of the field, right? And so we try to understand how the dissertations are also tools for uh, a colonizing project. So I just want to mention that because we can talk about these three categories, which I think are, are really interesting in a way of reading dissertations, but also to understand that that's our own effort to order, to, to produce an order out of a much more chaotic archive. So the encyclopedic dissertation is the one with, that seeks to be an authoritative, an authoritative voice presenting sort of the building blocks of an universal encyclopedia to an unknowing audience. So they try to present topics like education in Mexico, education in India, or not only located in places, but also thinkers, sort of the idea of Greek moral education or Herbart's thought. And so we call them encyclopedic because they present themselves as all-knowing on that specific topic. And they don't engage in arguments with other authors because what they present is the one objective view of that thing. At least that's how, in some ways, they present themselves. As I said, it's unruly, so you can see tensions within dissertations that struggle against this idea of them being objective, for example. Do you have an example of that? Um, yes, I think maybe one of the most interesting examples here is uh, Manuel Barranco's dissertation. He was a Mexican um, doctoral student who produced his dissertation around education in Mexico. And basically what he does is sort of enumerates all the races in Mexico, enumerates the history of the different periods of education in Mexico. Um, but in different parts, what he's trying to say is justify why is he doing it, right? And it's interesting because what Barranco says is that that most Mexicans know of the U.S. only their warships that land their ports and bomb them. And he wants Mexicans to know the other Americans, the ones that build schools and bring progress to the world. And so he wants to approach what he calls the Indians to lift them out of their lack of culture and civilize them, but not as colonizers, but as friends. He uses those kind of words. So you can see in Barranco his own struggle with presenting sort of a solid building block on the encyclopedia, but at the same time, him being unable to remove himself from um, the purpose of the citation, which is really to introduce to the American people the fact that the Mexican people have a, their own culture, have their own struggles, and to introduce to the Mexican people an idea of America as a friend. And so it's really interesting the way in which that dissertation presents this, on the one hand, encyclopedic knowledge about Mexico, but on the other, the struggles of the author as what is his role there in bringing the ideas to whom. 
Right. And it's and it's his it sounds like it's a struggle between his role, his expected role by perhaps fellow TC students and professors about taking the ideas back to Mexico, but then his sort of expected role as being a Mexican national and trying to educate the Americans on all of the different aspects and qualities of the Mexican context and culture that perhaps are often missed. Exactly. And and so he, for example, one of the things you see in his dissertation is in this enumeration of race. This is clearly a way of reading race from a U.S. slash European perspective of the time, right? Into strict category. But that process already is a flawed process, not only because of the, of the assumptions of it, but by the idea that it can encompass all the population. And Barranco himself struggles with that, with having to use these tools to fit them into the Mexican setting. So it, it's really interesting to see his own positionality being sort of caught in this, in this, on the one hand, European colonial project of dissertation, but also his own awareness of dissertation as a political project of peace between U.S. and Mexico. So do you think his dissertation was, you know, is this like an outlier in this sort of category of encyclopedic dissertation where there's the tension is so, in a sense, palpable between these two different sides of the author? Or, you know, is that is that an outlier and it's more common to just see dissertations that are, you know, here's the truth of this context? It's definitely more common to see what you said, just, this is the absolute truth, objective truth, and there's no discussion. But the first dissertation in our archive, and chronologically, from Chamberlain from 1900, the first dissertation to be defended at Teachers College uh, was about education in India. And Chamberlain, as himself a British, a man of British ancestry in India, talks about the British Empire disrupting Indian education and tradition in a way that is fairly critical to the British project without giving up on the idea of British as a civilizing force. So Barranco and Chamberlain are not the majority, but they're also part of the struggles of the field from, from the beginning. It's, it's interesting to recognize that struggle from the beginning because I feel like that happens today. I, you know, I, I have students who come from different countries and, and you can see them struggling with trying to sort of represent that country and take ideas back to that country, but also sort of educate me about their country in, in, in ways that I might never have known previously. So in, in a way, I feel like that tension is so contemporary. That is the tension I live with every day, right? So I came from Argentina to the U.S. In Argentina... In the circles I move, the U.S. is the empire. The, the U.S. is the thing you fight against in many ways, right? And so my own history is marked by that tension, by the fact that when I go back to Argentina to present some of my work, I'm read with a lot of skepticism as someone coming from the U.S., right? But at the same time, it's someone coming from the U.S. with the knowledge and experience of having lived in Argentina up to my mid-20s. So I think I, when I read Barranco's dissertation, for example, I read many of my own struggles, of course, 120 years later. That's quite amazing to, to realize that, you know, 120 years later, there's still a lot of ideas that, that resonate. I mean, I'm sure there's so many people in our field that have similar experiences. So let's move on to the, the second type of dissertation that you've identi identified with all the caveats that you've given earlier. You, you call it the comparative dissertation. So what are these types? I mean, it sounds obvious, comparative, 
Uh, but how do they govern knowledge and subjects and relationships, thinking more about the discourse that you were really trying to uncover? So the comparative dissertation does not attempt to present a totality, but it attempts to isolate specific phenomena in different settings to then compare them to each other or to compare them to a norm. And in order to do that, the authors have to establish their own authority to do that, to isolate, but also to provide the tools to measure and compare. Um, this is what we call, or we're trying to see, sort of the prehistory of the field of comparative international education, right? There's a lot of writing from Erwin Epstein, from Liping Wu, about the role of teacher's college in, um, in, in founding the field of comparative international education, usually starting around the 1920s with the foundation of the International Institute. This is sort of the prehistory of that, is a moment in which in education there's not subfields yet. It's, it's all, because it's a small program, you see the same faculty participating in all the committees and ideas being shared more widely. And so in the comparative dissertation, what you see is these comparisons starting to understand the field of education as a field that can be used to compare system models, ideas, and how they flow in different places. Um, one, I think, wonderful example that was also explored in a dissertation produced by Fleisch in the mid-90s was about um, Charles Loram. Charles Loram was a South African white man that came to Teachers College to study how the U.S. Um, in, the, in the first quarter of the 20th century, how the U.S. educated black people in the South to understand how, it, how the U.S. dealt with, quote-unquote, um, the inferior populations, right? And so he learned that about the U.S. in the South and brought those ideas to South Africa to basically help found the apartheid system in education. And, and that's a fascinating dissertation because on the one hand, uh, Loram takes tools from Thorndike in measuring intelligence and tests. He takes things from school administrators to understand how to administer a system that tries to help teach manual labor. Uh, but also, this is really interesting to us, is that the third signature in Loram's dissertation, which is explicitly raised, is John Dewey. John Dewey is part of Loram's committee. And, 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 and it's really interesting to understand, again, this entanglement, this deep, complex relation between coloniality, the role of teachers' college, the role of the U.S., and how ideas flow and circulate. And how these ideas then sort of get implemented inside institutions, right? Get justify particular practices, as you're saying, in South Africa. I mean, that's really quite an amazing, you know, it's a story that I've never heard before about how teachers college, you know, there was a student who learned all about how African Americans were being educated in the South and used that knowledge to then institute apartheid. Right. And, and he was part of, again, what Fleisch calls the South Africa Club. It's a group of five people that came in, in the first uh, three or four decades of the 20th century to teachers college. They were all connected to one another and, and it was part of a project, right? Uh, but, but it's fascinating to see that and to see also the emergence of a particular kind of expert. We're seeing that not only particular kind of knowledge has been produced, but particular ways of knowing. And the expert that is, I think, is the genealogy of what we now see as the consultant, right? The international consultant. The one that knows what to look at, how to look at different things in different places without paying much attention to context in order to then take those lessons and, and apply them somewhere else. That's what we see in these dissertations. These scholars are trying to um, justify the ways in which you can look at education of African Americans in the South and then think that that is applicable to South Africa. 
Right. It, it is an interesting issue of the, the educational expert and how comparison becomes a tool that sort of legitimizes and gives power to that expert. The ability to, quote unquote, compare is, is sort of a very powerful tool to wield. So the third type of dissertation that you look at is what you call the psychometric dissertation. What what are these types of dissertations? So this is in in some ways a little different, right? Um, whereas the first two types are messier, they they really mix with one another. Um, they were hard to create in different categories. This psychometric dissertation looks and feels different. These are dissertations that treat education as an experimental science following a clearly positivist paradigm. Um, they are, like I said, more homogeneous, and mostly they describe experiments and results without much framing. Um, they share with the encyclopedic dissertation the idea of sort of cumulative knowledge. They build on one another in order to, to build this com full understanding of the human mind. Uh, and they share with the comparative dissertation the importance of comparison, right, and setting up norms and, and standards. But however, the production of expertise here is very different. This is about um, objective followers of specific methodologies that lead to the verification of reproducibility in the experiments. And here, so our most of our article is, is, is sort of tries to avoid looking at the biographies and the names of people in order to focus mostly on the text. But in this category, it's really hard to avoid the outsized role of Edward Thorndike. Thorndike sponsors all dissertations in this um, in this category, and you can see his imprint uh, on the idea of what counts is what can be measured. What can be measured is knowledge, and what cannot be measured is not knowledge. Also, you can see his eugenic ideas really at play in comparing comparing the intelligence of different races, comparing the intelligence of different populations, and using those experimental methods to inform pedagogy, to inform school administration, to inform the field writ large. Who was Thorndike? Can you give a, just a, a quick overview of, of who he was and why he might have such ideas? So Edward Thorndike was hailed uh, by some folks as one of the founding fathers of experimental psychology and education psychology. Um, he was really um, a man uh, obsessed with measurements with IQ. He drew some of the tools for measuring IQ and then used them to engaging in conversations with people like in what we now would call subfields, but at that time really in a small department were, were colleagues. One, one small tidbit is that Teachers College, until last year, had one of its buildings named after him. And through activism of students and faculty, uh, the board finally voted to rename that building because uh, it's really hard to look at Thorndike and to look at his contributions without considering uh, the role of eugenics in his ideas and how, again, they travel. If we go back to Loram, Loram drew a lot from Thorndike's ideas about the difference in intelligence among races in order to um, bring those ideas to South Africa. Huh, interesting, interesting. So these sort of experimental methods were these sort of new, at, you know, in the early 1900s? Were they sort of, you know, becoming popularized at that point? So they were new for education, right? Um, the field of psychology had, was, was in the process of being established as an experimental science, but the idea of applying this to education was really starting to emerge. 
And that's why Thorndike has such an outside role. Um, I think that it's also telling about the relation between Teachers College and Columbia. And Teachers College never been taken that seriously by Columbia because education was not seen as a serious science or a field of research. Um, and, and Thorndike really trying to prove to Columbia and to psychologists that you can treat education as a hard science. That is what is relatively new at the time. Huh, that's quite an interesting insight. Do you, do you see any connections to some of these, you know, experimental methods, this psychometric dissertation? Do you see any connections to today? Like, do you know, are, are there legacies of, of this type of work still in education? Going back to the struggle to rename that building, there was, I have to say, quite a bit of resistance from psychologists who still see them their work as indebted to Thorndike's idea. Um, so whereas, while I'm not a psychologist myself and I cannot claim that expertise, um, experimental psychology and parts of the ways in which the neurosciences have, are trying to have an impact on curriculum, on pedagogy, on school organization, I think you can draw certain lines between what Thorndike's trying to do and the idea that if only we knew more about the brain, we would be able to solve the problems of education. I think there is something to be said about that connection, right? It's not a, it's not linear. So when I say draw a line, it's not linear. There's there's a lot of discontinuities, and within neurosciences, there are a lot of people that have much more nuanced views. But when we see, for example, the ways in which some of the insights from the neuroscience uh, neuroscience are boiled down to several bullets, not necessarily by neuroscientists, but by people that try to do the translation and bring those insights to education, I think we can see a lot of Thorndike's legacy there. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess this idea of, um, you know, scientific rationality is, is certainly still with us in some, some parts of academia. Definitely, definitely. So when you look across this messy archive that you've sort of begun to unpack here, what sort of rules and norms do you see governing this genre of the dissertation and its production of knowledge? I think maybe one of the most fascinating thing of reading dissertation at a time in which it was not taken for granted that education was a field of research, where it was not taken for granted that you could have a doctorate in education. It was one of the first ever doctorates in education. So one of the most interesting things here is that the rules are in the making. So it's really hard to figure out rules because the genres have histories. And by that, what I mean is they have changed and they have moments of, in which they start to coalesce. But the earlier dissertations are truly hard to... Some of them, you read them and you don't recognize them as a dissertation. There is a dissertation, for example, that is basically a list of all the ways in which you can measure school efficiency without any framing, without any conclusions, just a pure list of measurements that includes, for example, I'm not paraphrasing here, how much toilet paper a school uses, how much chalk a school uses, the height of the chalkboard, uh, so it's just a list of things you can measure in school, and that is the whole dissertation. So, and that got someone a PhD. Exactly, right? And so it's really interesting to think that, I mean, now, of course, that would never fly, but that tells you that what we now take for granted as what constitutes a dissertation has a history like that of any genre. And so we need to understand that because it has a history, it could be different. What we assume now to be the absolute must of any dissertation is that necessarily so, or is a historical construction of how we see 
what counts as knowledge, whose knowledge counts, which ways of knowing count within academia. And so looking at the archive of dissertations, for me, it was not that much about seeing which rules govern them, but how are the rules that govern us now produced at a time in which it was not clear that this could have rules. Right, right. So, so in a sense, do you think you are more aware of the rules that govern dissertations today? And is that changing your practice for supervision of PhD and even master students? I think so. Um, I mean, it's not, these are institutional histories, and it's hard to say my own practice can be completely different from the whole field, right? I don't want a student to produce a dissertation that I like, but that then is not recognized as a dissertation in the field writ large, and that student then can't get a job. But also, I start to question what is it that we take for granted. For example, the ways in which we force students to put markers or like tribal belonging, right, in their dissertations, who to quote so that people can uh, plant their flags as this person belongs to my field, to my tribe, to my group. Uh, and, and how is it that we came to think of that as part of dissertation? How is it that we came to think that dissertation have to have a several number of chapters? The first chapter is theoretical framework, the second lit review, the third is method. Why is it that we are forcing different ways of knowing, different ways of reading the world into these very rigid structures? And clearly, other people are doing this. TC, I think, among many other institutions, has a lot of space for creativity if you push for it. Uh, a few years ago, we had a graphic novel defended as a dissertation, um, and, 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 and different ways of using narrative knowing as dissertations. But the archive shows us that there's, there's a world of possibility out there. If we try to think about how is it that just forcing ways of knowing into particular formats is also, once again, a colonizing project. If we want to decolonize our field, we need to think about the forms and the ways of knowing that are validated within academia. And one more thing I would like to mention is that for us, and this is for everyone else, right? It w we presented an initial draft of ideas of this paper at CIES in 2019. And the feedback we got from our discussant and from the audience deeply informed the final shape of this paper. So I want to just highlight the collective work of producing these papers are not just about the authors, but the conversations we have in places like CIES. It's just a really interesting sort of entry point to think about decolonizing our field, to think about our practices with dissertation supervisions, to think about what knowledge is. So I'm really looking forward to um, your other publications that are going to bring us up to the 1940s on this project. And I can also see this project, you know, continuing to this very day because we continue to build this archive of dissertations. So thanks again for joining Freshhead. But thank you, Will. It was my pleasure talking to you. Danny Friedrich is an associate professor at Teachers College, Columbia University. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Ing Jung Cho, Obafemi Ngunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shockdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. 
I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.